This resource combines expositional sermons and lectures from the classroom of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary to help equip listeners for the work of the ministry. We were speaking about the fourth point of Baptist identity, which is the point of churches being separate or being churches that, are, that have a theological integration to them, that try to integrate all these other points of theology. But so far we've looked at uh, Baptists are Orthodox. We've affirmed that Baptists are Evangelical. Uh, we've said Baptists are catechetical and confessional. Uh, and now we're looking at this part of a theologically integrated ecclesiology. <clears throat> and we've talked about several points of that. We've uh, seen that something about the church universal, something about the nature of the local church, affirmed believers' baptism, and talked about life in the local church as being something where every person is seen as having a gift, all part doing its work, and this builds up a, a great and glorious fellowship. <clears throat> also, it means that there must be discipline in the local congregation if we're following the mandates of Scripture. And we see that there are those who give indication that they have not been born again, and after admonition they cannot be instructed. Then there's a method by which they can be disciplined and seen as no longer a part of the congregation. And in Baptist confessions, and especially in these uh, parts that are usually appended to the theological confessional part, the church covenant, or some rules of decorum, or some document like that, it'll talk about the issue of the necessity of church discipline. Also, a part of Baptist life is that though we're very strong on particular churches, and on local church autonomy, believing Christ is head of the church, is Lord of the church, and gives gifts to each of these churches. Baptists have seen a New Testament pattern that there's a, a cooperative spirit of fellowship with other local churches in which the churches seek to provoke one another to, to good works. And this has been done in two areas. Baptists have sought internal consistency of doctrine, and life. If you look at the early associations in Baptist life, they had confessions of faith and churches were not admitted to the association unless they had read and agreed to the confession and were willing to accept the confession as expressive of their own faith. Philadelphia Association consistently uh, does this. Having sent our confession of faith, they have read it, they fully consent with it, we therefore gladly receive them into our fellowship. And so that is, that is one way in which they sought to maintain this sort of universal expression of, of truth. And also they've seen uh, this kind of union as necessary for joint efforts in extending the gospel to the nations. Churches could do in concert with each other much more than any one particular church could do by themselves. Individual churches can do some things. Uh, and should do some things just as missionary work from their own local church, but there are also times in which ministers are being sent out that have a confessional position, that have gifts, in which more than one church can unite in order to 
uh, support those ministries that they might not be able to support on their own. I think 3 John, where we see John commending, I believe it's Gaius there for sending the brothers on in a way worthy of God, though, they, though he has, has not known them, didn't know them, but he knew that they were carrying the word uh, to the, the Gentiles and they received nothing from the Gentiles. So it was a good thing for them to support such men. And they participated or partakers of the truth in doing that. So that was, that's a model for cooperative efforts. And also, one of the most uh, sort of revolutionary ideas that, are, that came out of Baptist theology from a social standpoint and even a political standpoint has been the affirmation of liberty of conscience and separation of church and state. Uh, these doctrines have been manipulated and fondled until they're not recognizable now in many ways. But the doctrine of liberty of conscience was a fundamental theological commitment on the part of Baptists in order to maintain a believer's church. They recognized that the state church was, could not be a believer's church if everyone was required to attend the parish ministry, take communion in the parish, even though they were unregenerate and ungodly. They were required to do this. If they believed other things entirely, if the rule of law made them conform to the church, then this perverted the church. It was for church purity that they supported liberty of conscience. The best writings on this come from a man named Christopher Blackwood, an English Baptist who uh, talked about the baptism of infants and the, and the rejection of liberty of conscience are the two main uh, pillars of Antichrist that still have to be destroyed. And Roger Williams, in his two volumes, basically on liberty of conscience, uh, entitled The Bloody Tenet of Persecution for Cause of Conscience. And then another one called The Bloody Tenet of Persecution for Cause of Conscience, Yet More Bloody by Master Cotton's Attempt to Wash It White in the Blood of the Lamb. Uh, so there's this, uh, this theological defense of liberty of conscience that comes out of the ecclesiology of the Baptists. This became pervasive, uh, and the concept of liberty of conscience, of course, then leads to the idea of separation of church and state for the sake of the purity of the church. It leads to, a, to the idea that the magistrate cannot do the work of those that the Spirit himself is gifted within the local church. These gifts are given to the local church and not to the magistrate. They did not go as far as the Anabaptists and say the magistrate cannot be a Christian or a Christian cannot serve as a magistrate. But they did say that a magistrate is not over the church but in the church and can be disciplined by the church the same as any other, um, any other member. And so Baptists did not look <clears throat> for help from the government in that way. None should be forced to profess either in print or by public statement or action of body or contribution of money that which they do not believe to be the truth. And none should be prosecuted under law for living holistically in harmony with their conscience as long as they do not actively bring harm on the goods and or bodies of other people. So this was a, this was a, a part of Baptist distinctives that has had a, a tremendous impact <clears throat> upon uh, the last 200 years of, of thought on these issues. Uh, a, a recapture of the 
full-bodied theological understanding of this, I think, would be a prominent part of Baptist witness in this age. We fall away from it when we think the public schools should do the work of the church, when we think government should do the work of the church, uh, when we think that it will, in my opinion, when we think that it's somehow the obligation of the public schools to put up the Ten Commandments in the church. I personally don't think that that is a valid thing for the public schools uh, to do. Uh, I know that arguments can be made the, the other ways, but the understanding of law and gospel is something that is to be preached in the churches. Uh, the churches conquered the Roman Empire simply by preaching and by dying, by preaching the truth, by standing against immorality within the congregation, by writing against it, what they thought, but they did not expect to be able to start a rally in Rome and convince the emperor to take their view on, on something. They would write apologetic literature, present them to the emperors in order to, to show that the persecution of Christians was something that was basically irrational and was destructive of the empire itself, but the transformation of life came from the preaching of the gospel and the willingness to suffer for the sake of the truth. And that is an idea that Baptists sought to recover in their understanding of separation of church and state. All right, that's the, uh, those are the things that we're looking at in Baptist identity throughout these lectures now. You'll see me referring to these ideas, how important uh, one or other or many of these ideas were in the particular theology of the individuals or the associations or movements that we'll be looking at. <clears throat> now let's look at the question of uh, Baptist origins. Since we have looked at, at Baptist identity, we want to ask the, the question, uh, where did Baptists come from historically? What was the reason? There have been several theories of Baptist origin. Some of them are akin to what we call successionist theories. There are basically oh, three kinds of successionist theories. One is apostolic succession. This has not been a Baptist way of, of viewing the church, not in any detailed way. Roman Catholicism believes that they are the true church because of apostolic succession. Greek Orthodoxy affirms the same thing, that there's an unbroken continuity of ordination all the way back to the apostles, and it is this unbroken continuity of ordination and sacrament that makes them the true church. Anglicanism maintains this from the standpoint of apostolic succession and the ordination that is necessary to have a true church. Uh, and uh, Lutheranism uh, has this to some degree, but they are more focused on baptismal succession than they are apostolic succession. So that leads us to the second kind of successionist theory, and that is baptismal succession. That the true church is located in that there's been an unbroken chain of baptism. Baptism has not been perverted. The theology of baptism has been basically the same since the time of the New Testament. Uh, since it was instituted in the life of John the Baptist, practiced by Christ, and made a peculiar ordinance within the church, baptism has remained the same. Luther in his Babylonian captivity of the church says that baptism is the one thing that has not been changed. Antichrist was not able to pollute baptism. So he still affirmed infant baptism. He affirmed the sacramental nature of baptism. 
uh, and he believed that that was the, the, the sphere within which Lutherans could, change, could claim to be uh, the continuity of the, of the true church was because they maintained baptism. <clears throat> a third kind of succession is church succession. That is, there has been an unbroken chain of local churches that manifest all the doctrinal and ecclesiastical characteristics of the true churches, and they've been organically related to each other. There's never been a time when these true churches did not uh, exist. Within Baptist life, <clears throat> this is the landmark view. We'll talk about the landmark movement in a specific lecture later, but just briefly, landmarkism arose in the 19th century. Uh, the beginners of landmarkism even recognized that they were beginning a new movement, but they thought that they were capturing and just putting into uh, some sort of bringing to the level of consciousness those things that had always existed in Baptist life, but they affirmed that there had never been a time when there were not Baptist churches. It's called the Trail of Blood. Every distinctive characteristic of a true church has survived intact and was manifest in a continuation of local churches from the time of John the Baptist to the present. Uh, in my view, though it would be a wonderful thing if that were the case, I don't think that Matthew 16 requires this. They base it on Matthew 16, on this rock I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So it's a theological issue with them. They think that Jesus has failed to preserve his church uh, if there's ever been a time when those local churches like that did not exist. Uh, the Matthew 16 passage, in my mind, does not require that. Uh, but if you look at the context of it, what has happened is Peter has confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Jesus has said, Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father which is in heaven. And I tell you, you're Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church. What he's talking about there is that there will be an effectual operation of the Spirit of God sent by the Father upon the hearts of all of those that will be saved. They will confess that Jesus is the Christ. This is the perpetuity that he's, that he's talking about. And he will, he will build his church upon that confession of faith. It is that which will denominate those who are within his uh, called people. And also, uh, every church that is a church must have that confession set forth in its purity. Uh, there are, in my <coughs> study of this, my, allowing my theology to come in to affect my history here, there are differing degrees of corruption that come into churches. There are certain points at which I would not think that a church should be eliminated from the category of being a church. For example, I would say Lutheran congregations that maintain the doctrine of justification by faith, that maintain orthodoxy, though they are mistaken about the doctrine of baptism and perhaps the Lord's Supper, nevertheless maintain enough continuity of the truth and of the confession, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, that they could be called churches, though they are corrupt churches. Uh, Presbyterian churches, I think, are churches, are true churches. I would not say they're just religious societies, religious organizations. 
I'm willing to call them churches, though I differ with them on baptism, and I think that baptism has the tendency to corrupt their congregations. So I think that their congregations have a degree of corruption that come into them as a result of the theological enforcement of their understanding of, of baptism. But that doesn't mean they're not a church. But there are different levels of corruption that come in. The question that I think that each of us uh, has to deal with is at what point do corrupt congregations cease to be churches? And there are ways all along these four points of identity, I think, that corruptions come in. I think anything that does not have a theologically integrated ecclesiology, as I have described, <clears throat> uh, has a confessionally a, a corrupt ecclesiology. Their corruption's already present. So those are three successionist theories, apostolic succession, baptismal succession, church succession. There are others who have a kind of successionism, successionism, but it's not organic in this way. Those three kinds of organic succession. If I were to give you on your test a multiple choice question, and I said parts of organic succession, and I put down apostolic, baptismal, or I said what is not, not a part of organic successionism, and I put apostolic, baptismal, church, and principial continuation, then you would put down principial continuation is that which is not a part of organic successionism. Okay? You might see that. Take that down. It could be... <clears throat> a principial continuation says there are certain principles that are necessary for a true church to be formed. And there's never been a time when all of these principles were absent from the church at large. There may, may have been one congregation that held to the Lord's Supper in the right way, another that had a confession of faith that was, con that was, that was uh, thorough, another that that holds to the two officers of the church being only deacons and, uh, and pastors or elders, and, and other principles. And all of these were present in the church at large, but perhaps not in any one single congregation by the time you get after the 4th century and up until the 16th century. This, this, this could be the situation. But none of those principles ever perish because someone saw them in Scripture. If they're part of the true church and they're part of the scriptural witness, and people who were studying the Bible would come up with some things that were true related to the existence of the church. I think uh, the historian Armitage proposes this as a means for tracking the continuity of truth throughout history that, would, that if all came together in a coherent way would form a true church. So that's a, that's a realistic continuation of these things in certain pockets of these ideals. But there's also what could be called the idealistic continuation of these, and that is they're always in Scripture. Anytime a person discovers them in Scripture and enacts them in a scriptural way, then they then become reified as a part of the church. Uh, this is the way the Passover was. Did the Passover cease to exist during the time the Babylon, the, uh, Babylon, uh, the Babylonian captivity? Well, if it ceased to exist, then they could not reinstitute it. But when they come back to the Holy Land, they reinstitute the Passover, though they had not been able to do it before. And so this is the way, that this idealistic, it's there in Scripture, we're commanded to do it. Once a person sees it and understands it and embraces it, he is obedient to it, and so therefore it comes back 
uh, into an uh, observable historical existence, though it has always been there in Scripture. That basically is what John Spilsbury was, was talking about as he talks about the Word of God is that which fits and prepares the matter for the form. Now, a, th a third kind of view of church continuity that is getting more close to contemporary understandings of Baptist origins is the Anabaptist kinship theory. The Anabaptist kinship theory says that a Baptist life arose out of the combination of Anabaptist influence and the influence from English separatism. That there were factors at work within the Anabaptist movement, the recapturing of a believer's church ideal, believer's baptism, many principles that would be adopted by Baptists. Though the Anabaptists had some peculiar, particular ideas that they maintained that Baptists would differ from, would differ with, but that the influence of Anabaptists was necessary both for the beginning of the general Baptists as they confronted the Anabaptists in Holland and the particular Baptists as the particular Baptists read Anabaptist literature and talked to Anabaptists that came from Holland like on business trips, as it were, trading, a lot of trading going on. So these ideas, as Irving Horst uh, says, uh, ideas have feet. And so these ideas made their way into the discussions of the JLJ church. Well, that is probably true. Ideas do have feet. and We know ideas get around, but a historian has to ask for some precise documentation as to, as to a knowledge. This person got this idea from, from this. So, so the Anabaptist kinship theory may be true, both with the general Baptists and the particular Baptists. I personally receive it with the origin of the general Baptists, and I hope to demonstrate that uh, in a few minutes. I do not accept it with the origin of the particular Baptists. I don't think that there is documentary evidence that the particular Baptists had direct influence from the Anabaptists, but it arose from their own discussions, their theological discussions, as they were interacting with Puritanism and separatism. And as we've already seen, John Davenport's statement, strong statement about the purity of the church and examining people's experiences and not receiving people in the membership who did not have a sufficient experience, that kind of interaction that was going on is eventually what led that group of people in London that were discussing this, that were within a solidly Calvinistic confessional framework, to become a Baptist. And I think in, in, in my study of this, I have not found sufficient documentation to say that the Anabaptists influenced the beginning of the particular Baptist. Um, so that the Anabaptist kinship theory has both of those. The English separatist descent theory, uh, manifest by a historian, an English historian named Barry White, called the uh, English separatist tradition. It's perhaps the clearest expression of this, though many have held it. Uh, says that both in particular Baptists and in general Baptists, it was only the separatist ideal and the discussion of the nature of the true church and visible saints composing the true church that led to Baptist life 
in both cases. Now, obviously, I would accept that theory as it relates to particular Baptists, but I don't think they can make their case as it relates to general Baptists. I think there's evidence that they really overlook when they are arguing that not even the general Baptists were, came as a result of the influence of, of Anabaptists. So my view is a combination of number three and number four. Number three, in the case of the general Baptists, a number four in the case of the particular Baptists. Uh, both of these are built upon the attempt to find the origin of Baptists from looking at the documents of the 16th century. Uh, all right, it is <clears throat> with that then that we will now look at the question of how did the English separatists become Baptists? And we look at this in the life, first of all, of John Smith. As you can imagine, it's sort of difficult to locate a particular person whose name is John Smith in English history and know for sure that it's the John Smith we're talking about. But you have to sort of work your way back to the documents. And we do know that he matriculated at Christ College in Cambridge in 1586. We have a sort of an unbroken account of this John Smith from 1586. There are other things we can deduce about him from things that are said about him, but as far as locating any other records like his early baptismal records or the family he came from or something, it's, it's just sort of a, a very difficult thing to, to do. But we know that by 1586 he had matriculated at Cambridge, at Christ College. <clears throat> and there were several influences that came to bear that eventually bore fruit. We know that when he was there he was a, a committed... Puritan, very strong Puritan. Uh, he came from a poor family because he was uh, in the, a section of, of students that actually, they were servitors, as they were called. They, they served other people. They, they polished the shoes of those who had more money. They fed them. They cooked. They did all sorts of things, but they got their education paid for for, for doing this. So John Smith served in that position, but evidently made quite an impression upon his colleagues, upon his teachers. He was called a scholar of no small reading, uh, which meant that he read and absorbed a lot and was able to carry on discussions on these areas. But while he was there, after he finished his, his BA, he studied with a, for an M.A., and his tutor in his M.A. was a man named Francis Johnson. Francis Johnson also was a Puritan, but eventually became a separatist. Uh, and he, Johnson and Smith made friends with each other, and so they kept up with each other. And Francis Johnson's own development, I'm sure, had an impact upon John Smith as Johnson went from Puritanism to separatism. Many factors led to that, but this was a, a significant contact that John Smith had while he was at Cambridge. Also, uh, the teachers at Cambridge, the, the very powerful teachers there, were strong Calvinists. William Perkins lectured on the Apostles' Creed. 
there, resulting in the publication of his exposition of the Creed. He also lectured on uh, issues related to the doctrines of grace. Uh, Thomas Cartwright was a lecturer there. Uh, William Whitaker, all of these were Puritan Calvinists who taught. <clears throat> During his exams, a student named Barrett took exception to the content of the lectures. Uh, and he made an argument, an anti-Calvinist argument. Uh, he was supported by a professor named Barrow. Well, this discussion on campus, which focused on the doctrine of predestination, uh, led to the writing of a document known as the Lambeth Articles. It's a nine-article confession of faith that is a, an extensive exposition of the doctrine of election. Uh, and... <clears throat> It was one that was actually taken uh, later to the Senate of Dort by English representatives that were, were sent there by James. And so, though Smith still was a Calvinist by the time he graduated, he had heard a debate over the doctrine of predestination. He had heard a student present arguments opposing it. Of course, he also heard William Perkins and William Whitaker, Thomas Cartwright, and those were not any flimsy polemicists in themselves. And so when he graduated, he graduated fully in accord with the Calvinistic understanding of soteriology and with the Puritan understanding of ecclesiology. We know that by 1600, Probably after preaching itinerantly or preaching in small churches, he was finally called to a place in 1600 in Lincoln. The reason it had taken him a while is because there was a lot of pressure on the Puritans at this time to conform to the Church of England, to use the Book of Common Prayer, and so they tried to find positions that were not parish churches where they could preach and teach but not be required to use the Book of Common Prayer or conform to the rituals. And there are several corporations that set up these positions known as lectureships where a, a Puritan could come in and could, could preach at times other than those that were designated times of worship for the parish congregation. So it would be weekdays and sometimes on Lord's Day afternoons that they would preach. And he functioned so effectively that by 1602 he was elected city preacher for life. Several of his sermon series were published as books, a, a Pattern of True Prayer, which is an exposition of the Lord's a prayer. Um, and in these books, we can see the, the Puritan understanding of the church, uh, an affirmation of the necessity of the magistrates enforcing uh, a uniformity in the church, though he was on the short end of that because that which was being informed that time was the Anglican church, but if it could become a Puritan church, then he would be in favor of it. Also, his affirmation of all the doctrines of grace, uh, effectual calling, perseverance of the saints, unconditional election, and uh, the effectuality of the atonement for the elect of God. All of these were things that he preached while he was lecturer there. Well, after he was elected, this city, this lifetime position lasted about three months. Uh, there was another candidate for this who rallied people in opposition to Smith 
jealousies got in the way and Smith was dismissed from his position by October of 1602. Uh, <clears throat> in some of his, his preaching, some of the ideas in his preaching that I've mentioned, he has, he's very clear on a belief in the necessity of Christ's deity and true humanity, so he's fully orthodox in his Christology. We'll see that that's important because of things he was willing to tolerate later. The substitutionary propitiatory nature of Christ's death in order to save his elect people, was affirmed. Uh, only by imputed righteousness can we be made right with God. He says that we declare the righteousness of Christ, the God-man, that is, the righteousness which he hath wrought for us in suffering and obeying the law. Turks and papists deny imputative righteousness and mock at a crucified Christ. It is highly important, therefore, that we fail not in defense of God's righteousness. It is a special duty to teach our children and posterity, especially the article of justification by faith only. This is, uh, this is Smith. Again, I'm saying this uh, because of the theological changes that took place in Smith. We are drawn to faith only by the effectual operations of the Spirit of God. We come home into the bosom of Christ by effectual vocation and true faith. He says, election, he believed, was an impetus to evangelism. All nations where we traffic, he says, where we have trade, where we are involved with other nations in mercenary things, must be brought to the knowledge and love of the truth. It is certain they may partake of this righteousness which Christ hath wrought for as many of them as appertain to his election. So he found the, uh, the doctrine of a, an effectual atonement, a particular redemption on the part of Christ as an impetus to evangelism, to go to the nations with the sure hope of success. And as I mentioned, he also said that the magistrate is responsible for enforcing true religion. Well, after he was dismissed, we lose track of him a little bit. We think he was in prison maybe a couple of times for, for preaching without a license. Uh, and in the Hampton Court Conference, which the Puritans held with James I when he came to the throne, they held it in 1604, the Hampton Court Conference failed. Uh, James told the Puritans that either they would conform to the church or he would harry them out of the land. They thought that they had a friend because he'd come from Presbyterian Scotland, but they didn't realize that he hated it. Could not stand the kind of boldness that Presbyterianism gave People where every person thought their opinion was as important as the king's opinion in religious matters. And he just he said that was not going to happen uh, in England, and so they had to conform. The only thing he granted, of course, at this Hampton Court Conference was allow them to make a translation of Scripture, which became the King James Version of Scripture. Uh, by 1607, Smith has dropped his Puritanism and become a separatist. He has not changed his soteriology, not changed his basic theology, but his ecclesiology has driven him out of the hope that the Anglican Church can be purified into an affirmation the Anglican Church is Antichrist. That's what the Puritans would not say. There was a massive difference ecclesiologically between the Puritans and the separatists. Uh, the separatists said that all of the ordinances, the covenant, everything, that the Anglican Church has has been given it to it, given to it by the great prostitute of Rome. And as the mother is, so is the daughter. 
And anyone who wants to be a true Christian and be in a true church has to come out of Anglicanism. And in 1607, John Smith wrote a work called Principles and Inferences Concerning the Visible Church, in which he argued this case very strongly. And he joined with another group of separatists, and they formed a church by covenant. They were asking the question, if, if we can't form the church by the baptism we have from the parish church, which is the baptism of Rome, how do we form it? Well, we form it by covenant. We take a visible covenant. We take a verbal covenant. And this covenant was recorded by William Bradford, who wrote the history of Plymouth Plantation. He was in this group that took covenant. And they took a covenant to walk in all the Lord's ways, made known unto them, or to be made known unto them, whatsoever it should cost them, the Lord assisting them. Well, that's the way they thought they churched themselves. They made a church by this covenant. They're taking a church upon themselves. And they divided into three different congregations after they took this covenant, <clears throat> with an emphasis, therefore, upon the integrity of each local congregation. In 1608, so much pressure had come upon the, the separatists uh, that John Smith and his group and John Robinson, another pa pastor of another part of the separatist church, took their congregations and they moved to Amsterdam. Now, in the meantime, Francis Johnson already had become a separatist and had been imprisoned for about four years, from 1593 to 1597. He had become a separatist by reading a book by the pastors of the separatist church in London, pastored by Greenwood uh, and um, uh, Greenwood and Barrow and Penry. He found the book being published in Zealand. He captured all the copies. He had them destroyed, turned them over to the authorities for their destruction, but he kept one copy for himself. So he could school himself on what the separatists believed and be able to refute them. He read it and he was changed. His mind was changed. He became a separatist. He went to London. He met with Greenwood, Barrow, and Penry there in the, uh, in the prison, talked with them, uh, became the pastor of the church, and he himself was in prison. The church therefore left and went to Amsterdam, and then Johnson joined them later. The intent of John Smith when he went in 1608 to Amsterdam was to join with Johnson's congregation, which by this time is called the Ancient Church. Well, it's called that because it's the surviving separatist church. It's the oldest of the separatist churches, but also because they believed that it was a duplication of the New Testament church. So they were going to join with Johnson's Ancient Church when they got there. As they began to attend worship and Smith began to talk with Johnson, he came to the conclusion that there were too many differences between them. And so his church did not join with Johnson's church. And so he wrote another book uh, called The Differences of the Churches of the Separation, explaining <clears throat> that their understanding of the officers was different. Uh, Smith disagreed with the trifold presbytery, which was defended by Johnson. Their use of their worship was different. Uh, 
Smith did not believe that any works of human composure should be used in worship. That was, the, that was the Puritan objection to the Book of Common Prayer. But included in that were translations of Scripture for, for Smith. So he has this weird thing that he believed in the inerrancy of the original autographs, that they are inspired and without error. But because a translation, no matter how faithfully it's done, is a work of human composure and cannot possibly duplicate every nuance of meaning, of the original language, it is not to be used in worship. People should train themselves to think godly thoughts by reading the scripture before worship, but then should allow for the free operation of the spirit during worship for true spiritual worship. And so John Smith is beginning to move out into a mystical realm that becomes very dangerous for the general Baptists later. But that's one of the reasons. And the third was the treasury. Johnson received money from the government. The government liked having these English people there. There were a lot of trade they could do. There was a lot of things they could establish in the economy of Amsterdam. And so the government helped them. They contributed to their congregation. And John Smith said that shouldn't be done. That, that, that corrupts the spirituality of the church. It all should be voluntary gifts by the people themselves. And everything should be, should they, should be a separation from them that are without and sanctification of the whole by prayer and thanksgiving. Well, by the next year, Smith has made another move. He has adopted believer's baptism. And his explanation of this is put forth in a book called The Character of the Beast, written in 1609. In this, he gives his theology of baptism, And he explains in the preface why he did not receive baptism from the Mennonites. This is a part of the long discussion that he should have received baptism from the Mennonites, but uh, he is disorderly. He had baptized himself. He took baptism upon himself. Well, Smith says, well, you separatists, you take a covenant upon yourself. You church yourselves by a covenant. What is the difference? If I believe that the church is formed by baptism, we take it upon ourselves to form the church. Uh, so he, he thought he had all of his defenses ready. He, he, uh, his book explains what he believes about baptism. It's really a very good book. It's an excellent book about baptism. The points that he makes, he affirms that uh, infants are not to be baptized. That's the first point. And he discusses that from three different levels. (coughs) One, he says there's neither precept nor example in the New Testament of any infants that were baptized. Two, Christ commands to make disciples by teaching them, then to baptize them. Infants cannot, by doctrine, become Christ's disciples. And three, he says if infants be baptized, the carnal seed is baptized. And so the seal of the covenant is administered to them unto whom the covenant appertaineth not. As in the Old Testament, carnal infants were carnally begotten and born by the mortal seed of generation by their carnal parents, and then were carnally circumcised and received into the carnal covenant. So in the New Testament, spiritual infants, newborn babes in Christ, must be spiritually begotten and born by the immortal seed of regeneration, By the spiritual parents, and then being spiritually circumcised, they shall by baptism with water be received into the New Testament. 
It's really a, it's a full discussion of this, both from the standpoint of the specific exegesis of what is commanded and, and what is the example, and by the covenantal relationship, showing continuity and discontinuity in the covenants. So all that's under the, the, the statement, infants are not to be baptized. The second statement is, anti-Christians converted. Now, by anti-Christians, he means people in churches that are not true churches. Anglicans, basically. <clears throat> anti-Christians converted are to be admitted into the true church by baptism. So they would not receive the baptism that they had received in the Anglican church. The churches are to be constituted as they were by the apostles. True baptism is but one. And all members of Christ must have true baptism because as the false church is rejected and the true erected and ministry and so forth, so false baptism must be renounced and the true baptism assumed. So he's adopted believer's baptism. Now the next thing we know, Smith has decided his baptism is invalid. And he is making overtures to the Mennonites to be received into their congregation. It's at this point that Thomas Helwes breaks with him. Thomas Helwes was a layman in the church, a wealthy layman who probably financed the move of the entire church to Amsterdam. He greatly trusted Smith. They were good friends. But Helwes was an independent thinker who studied Scripture very strongly himself. He had made all of these moves with Smith, but at the point at which he says, our baptism was taken upon, we take, took it upon it by mistake, we made an error, we should join with the Mennonites. It's at that point that Helvis said, that's not valid. We can't do that. Uh, I think we've been going about 45 minutes. And so we're going to break right here. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Preaching and Teaching, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. CBTS is a confessional Reformed Baptist seminary which provides affordable online theological education to help the church in its calling to train faithful men for the gospel ministry. To learn more, visit cbtseminary.org.